In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died. I think it was maybe, I want to say two to three hundred, I think is what I read. As they were hurled into the icy waters, news of the disaster was further discouraging because what happened was, after all this um, diving into what happened and investigations, uh, this was not a technology problem like the radar messing up or um, the steering wheel not working, something like that. There wasn't even thick fog. The cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was well aware of the ship in front of them. Uh, They even received radio direction. Hey, he's coming. He should probably veer off. They both could have steered clear. They had enough time, but they both, according to reports, neither captain turned. Each was too proud, and they, at the last minute, realized, I'm not going to make it, and they crashed and hit each other. Hundreds of people died. Most of them were below deck, so they drowned pretty quickly. A lot of people did escape, but many died. Pride is destructive. It causes literal disasters. Because of self-love and seeing others as competition, pride will destroy all those who are owned by it. Today, Paul is going to address the Corinthian church that they were full of pride, and he's going to show them the remedy of pride that we all have within our hearts. In this text, there are two types of Christianities that I put in the sermon title. There is a Corinthian Christianity, which Paul is going to address, which is very prideful, uh, very full of self-love. And then there's another type of Christianity, which people have called cruciform. So crucifixion, right? Just the idea that a, a, a true, authentic, obedient type of Christianity will look much different. One type is common and needs to be killed. The other type is not so common and needs to be pursued. And I hope that you would pursue that with me this morning. <coughs> So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 6. First, we're going to look at the Corinthian Christianity. So the the Corinthian Christianity. Look at verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brother. So as last week we covered that Paul talked about how he doesn't even judge himself, but he wants to be faithful to the Lord. He is a steward. He's a slave. He's a a slave of Christ. He's nothing high and mighty, though he's an apostle. And he's saying, well, we're under the same standard that you're under. Uh, we're not lofty. We're not great. We're just servants. We're slaves. Don't regard us as anything higher. So Paul's saying, we've applied these same things to ourselves. You need to do the same. So Paul very quickly says, if we're doing it, you have to do it too. Meaning that in the Christian life, though Paul and Apollos were great leaders, they were nothing but servants. They're not superior. Paul says he does this for your benefit. So this is for the good of the church. So he's reminding us that to be whole, to be sound in Christianity, things that we apply to others, we apply to ourselves in biblical truth as well. The Corinthian Christians were very misled about how to view reality. They were puffed up with pride. They were boastful. They acted in chapter 3 carnal, so unchristian-like. The problem was the Corinthians were mixing Christianity with Corinth. They were acting like Corinthians. If you remember in the first chapter, even just the background of of this letter, the town of Corinth was very, very boastful. They loved uh, wisdom. They loved pride. They loved saying, look at what we have. Look who teaches us. Look at us. Look how smart we are. Look how good we could debate. Look how intellectually far we are. There's a lot of boasting, hence chapter 1. Let's see what they're boasting about. Look at verse 6 again. First, they're comparing themselves 
to others. He says, do not be puffed up in favor against one another. The Greek word for puffed up has to do with the idea of literally blowing something up, of inflating something. It's a reference to bellows that you'd use to blow up a fire, right? To make the fire bigger. That's what the word literally refers to. So pride finds itself, first of all, in competition with others. Pride is always checking the score. Maybe you've had a match in basketball or a sport with somebody who's very prideful, and boy, they just cannot handle a loss. They're always comparing, always in competition. To be proud, ironically, is to be very lonely because you're always looking at people. You keep looking, well, that guy's doing this. So you think about others, but you're really thinking about self. Paul addressed this a lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. The same thing is in chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, some of you are arrogant. Chapter 5, verse 2, you are arrogant. Chapter 13, verse 4, love is not arrogant, right? The love chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up. And then here in verse 6 of chapter 4, you're being puffed up. So this is a common problem. This is all over the church. Lots of pride, lots of puffing up. Do you see why they have so many problems? Uh, maybe you know this. In the Bible, there are a lot of commands that say uh, one another, right? Love one another, bear with one another. Uh, there are 59 of those commands. And the Corinthian church was so prideful, there's not a single one that they could do right. It's all about self-love, self, 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 me, right? There's only competition. Looking at everyone, calculating within so the question must be asked, do you ever look at others and envy them or see them as taking the glory or praise that you deserve? I do that. Pride makes me compare myself. Always a competition. Well, look at what he has. Well, look what I have. Look who I am. That's what pride does. So what is the core of pride? Look at verse 7. It's looking at self. For who sees anything different in you? The Corinthians love self. They boasted in everything from possessions to knowledge to rank to who their pastors were, which is very ironic, to who they were, to where they lived. Everything that filled Corinth, the church was likewise infected with. In pride, we are the center of it all. Uh, when I am filled with pride, when I have prideful intention, which all of us do, I usually have one eye fixed on myself, looking at myself. And, the, and I do have another eye looking at other people, but it's only because I want to compare myself. Well, I did this, but that guy, I can't stand what he has. Right? That's what pride is. It's, it's ugly. It's always measuring itself. <clears throat> There's a story about a professional boxer named James Tillis, who he arrived in Chicago off the bus, first arrived thinking, okay, I'm here. He sets his, his briefcases down, looks at the Sears Tower and says, I'm going to conquer Chicago. Then he looks down, his briefcases have been stolen. So pride is so fixated on self and on competition that you forget what's going on. As a matter of fact, you are lost. Pride is really easy to see in other people. It's the problem. And to see in self, we actually need God's grace to see that we have pride too. Uh, there's a free book that, I, uh, that exists online. It's called Kill Joys. It's about 90 pages by the, a group called Desiring God. And in it, when the author, seven chapters has to do with the seven deadly sins in Proverbs, which pride is the first one. And the author writes this, Jason Meyer, he writes this about pride. Other sins lead the sinner further away from God, but pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God. 
Uh, prize Deceitful, right? It's a shapeshifter. Uh, it's like a seven-headed monster. You think you got it killed, and then it sprouts up over here somewhere else, right? It's sneaky. It's like trying to grab an eel, right? You just can't figure it out. Matter of fact, pride is so difficult because it manifests itself in different ways. Jason Meyer writes this, that there's two ways that pride often shows itself. The first one we all very much are familiar with, building up. So self-exaltation, uh, self-promotion. The second one, however, is a little more difficult to spot. Tearing down, he calls it. He says there's self-degradation and self-demotion. So the first one, building up, usually appears when we succeed and others fail. The second often occurs when others succeed and we fail. I want to give you an example. So building up, we all see this one. Typically when someone scores a touchdown, you see just a little bit of pride, right? We exalt ourselves by taking credit for the good in our lives. And then we self-promote it so others will see it and applaud, right? Look what I did. Look at me. Look at what I did, right? That we all know that pride. We think it's very ugly. Uh, Jesus went after this with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 6, you probably know, Jesus would say, when you pray out loud in public, when you fast in public, what do the Pharisees do? We're about to pray, right? Or when they're fasting, they would say, hey, how you doing? I'm pretty hungry and fasting a lot this week, you know, for the Lord, you know. That's boasting and pride that they're, they're looking like, look at us, Right? Jesus likewise said this in Luke chapter 18. This is how Pharisees talk. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, unjust, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes at all that I get. That's, I put the emphasis on the eyes, but that's, that's the point of the story. Is the, ta- the, the Pharisee says, well, look what I do. Look at that tax collector over there, right? That's what pride does. We all know that one. We recognize that one. Here's the flip side of pride. This week I told Kelly... I was very convicting um, and strikes pretty hard. I want you to listen very carefully. So the tearing down part of pride. These appear when we ponder and mull over our own failures and another success. For instance, we don't exalt self. Instead, we tear ourselves down and we boast in the fact that we have it worse off or we have less or we haven't done as well as others. That's the self-demotion. So in doing so, we are fishing for the praise that we feel we deserve. I'll give you an example. Man, I'm such a bad husband. Oh, Kelly, you're not that bad. No, I'm so bad. I'm like the worst. Like, I'm terrible. No, Kelly, you're right. No, I'm the, like, the worst guy I know. What am I doing? I'm begging you to tell me. You're a pretty good husband. I think that about myself, so I'm fishing. Please just tell me I'm good. So I can hear, oh, I love how that's... No, I'm, I'm really bad, right? It's, it's a disguise, right? It sounds almost humble. Like, oh, you, you, you think yourself or you think you're low. But it's so deceitful, and I do that. I, even promoting humility can be false humility, right? It's difficult. Jason Meyer again writes this, The common denominator for these types of pride is self-preoccupation. We want to be the center of attention for good or for bad. Isn't that awful? Pride is so gross, isn't it? I hate it. It's so ugly. So how do we defeat pride? Because we all have it. How do we destroy it? What do we do? Look at verse 7. Here's the answer. You need to look away from self and look to God. What do you have that you did not what? Earn. No. Receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the death of pride is to recognize that everything you have has been given to you. 
everything we are, everything we have, all of our goods and our bads, all of our abilities and inabilities, and even harder to remember, all of those that others have and don't have, and everyone else is given by God. Everything is received by God's design. God is the giver. He is the king. He gives as he pleases. We don't earn anything. God's grace makes the difference. I want to read you a passage that is particularly helpful. 1 Samuel chapter 2 says this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why? For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So it's so clear that God makes people rich and poor. He takes life, he gives life. He is the, the common denominator below everything because he is the king. So pride can be beheaded when God is beheld. When you look at God, you can destroy pride. Nothing to boast about. What do you have that you did not receive? We can drown our pride in the sea of God's grace. So here's, here's the solution. When both of your eyes are set upon God and his glory, you will have no eyes to look at your own. And boy, does that sound so easy. Or just look up more. It's true. But that's the answer. If, if you're fully fixed on Christ... You will rightly see yourself and you can rightly praise others' accomplishments because you recognize it is an evidence of God's grace in their life and not your own. A God-centered view will rid our hearts of a self-centered view. That's the key. So remember, ask yourself, what do you have that you did not receive? As a matter of fact, ask, ask it about your neighbor in your head. What do they have that they did not receive? The Christian worldview is a spectacular way to live. It is, isn't this the most freeing thought? You didn't earn anything. Neither did they. Why would you boast? Why, why do we need to envy? Why do we need to be frustrated? Everything is a gift. So consider the remedy. Next time in your pride you boast of self, or next time you envy and fish for confidence because someone is better, which is okay, remember two words sovereignly sent God sovereignly sent this to them or sent this to you and instead of boasting you can rejoice God thank you for your grace and when you see what others have what can you do you can rejoice with them that is such good news oh praise the Lord you don't have to have a pity party you can rejoice with them it's so freeing to know that grace makes the difference So how do you destroy sinful competition? Only grace. Look at everything and say, received by grace. Or Psalm 16, 5 says, probably my favorite verse, maybe in the entire Bible, it's pretty close. It's four words, one phrase. You, the Lord, you hold my lot. My lot in life, you hold it. There's nothing that I have that that you've not given me or steward or grant. I have no good apart from the Lord. That's what we need to remember. That's how you destroy pride. But we see how the Corinthians actually thought. Look at verse 8. This is what they actually thought themselves to do. 
Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. I read that this week and I thought, this is a very strange verse. What? did it sound like it's a praise, right? In light of what's already been said. Every single commentary I've read, which is a handful, says that Paul is mocking them. He's not saying, you guys are doing great. That's what they think, right? This is mockery. This is a judgment that the apostle is making. He, they think they already are this way. So Paul is saying, you've already become kings. With, right? The key word is already, already, already. Without us, you've already been. This is what Paul is trying to say. So to be a Corinthian Christian, you see yourself as already there. We're finished. We're good. I'm done. I don't need change. Don't need to be more like Christ. I'm pretty good. No need for growth. I don't even, I don't even need anything, really. Doesn't that sound ugly? You guys have already finished. You're the best Christians, right? Paul's mocking his Corinthians, right? It's, this is a judgment. This is not something we want to be said about ourselves. As a matter of fact, Jesus said a similar thing in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, to the church in Laodicea. He says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and have neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen to this. For you say, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That would be a judgment. <laughs> that is not a compliment. This is the same thing that Paul is doing. We know from the Bible, James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5, that God opposes the proud. Paul himself said in the Philippians that even he has not reached the goal, but he is striving for the goal. So if Paul has not reached the, the peak of what he wants to be, I mean, it's the most gentle way. How much further away are we if Paul's not there? If Paul needs to grow, I need to really grow. So a mark of a mature Christian is that he doesn't see himself as more independent and strong as a Christian, but as a matter of fact, sees himself as more dependent and weak. Maybe you know the song, leaning, I won't sing it for you because we don't want to do that, but leaning, leaning, leaning upon the everlasting arms. That is a mark of a true Christian. Not, I could stand, I'm fine. That's boasting. The mark of a strong believer of, of grace in their heart is knowing that you need more grace, not less. As we mature in the faith, we recognize God has great glory and we are greatly sinful. That's the mark of a believer. I'm not even close. Think of the biblical consistency of this in the Bible. Isaiah, after seeing the Lord, what does he say? So he sees the Lord, literally sees him. And he says this, I'm a man of unclean lips. He didn't say, oh, I'm pretty good. He says, I am not worthy to even look at you, right? Peter, after meeting Christ, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. John the Baptist, after meeting Jesus as well, I'm not worthy to even tie his nasty sandal. I, I can't even touch it. That's how unworthy I am. Paul, after his conversion, I'm the chief of sinners. He says, I'm the least of the apostles elsewhere. In Jesus himself in Philippians 2, we read that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for the glory of God the Father. So the Corinthians here were so filled with self and competition that they were striving, they were not striving for obedience. 
Pride rejects obedience because it is costly to our reputation. Let me say that again. Pride rejects obedience because it is costly to ourself and our reputation. To live as a Corinthian Christian is to live a Christian life, ironically devoid of joy, divorced from suffering, and deceived by being comfortable because of pride. Now Paul's going to give us what it means for him to be a believer, and as an apostle we need to follow a life of humility, a life of self-denial, the way of the cross, or the cruciformed life. So next we're going to look at cruciform Christianity, verses 9 through 13. And it's a very interesting passage. I hope you are zeroed in on it. In reality, God has so arranged the world and the truth of the Christian worldview that you probably know this, that we, are, we always as Christians appear, appear is a key word here, appear to be on the wrong side of history, right? Well, that's the old-fashioned way to think about it right? Two steps behind. When will you guys ever get on the train? You guys are just missing the boat here, right? We're always behind, always trying to catch up. And then because of that, pride as a Christian is very easy to slip into. What do you want to do when you hear these things? Well, it's very easy to blur the lines, right? To shade the truth, we call it, which is just lying. To be acceptable to the world. Right, we'll, we'll soften it. Well, I mean, yeah, we're, no one's perfect. We're not saying you're a sinner. We're just not all perfect, right? We'll soften. We'll shade. It's not, it's not lying, but it is lying, right? Because pride, we don't want our reputation to go down. We want to be liked more. A heart full of pride will lead to empty obedience. That's the problem. So what does Paul and the other apostles, what does the apostle Paul think of himself? Look at verse 9. God has exhibited us as... I'm sorry, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. What a flip. So remember, these are the apostles, the apostles. There's none other like them. There are no more apostles since they've died. And Paul says, we're like men sentenced to death. So the people in Corinth who are so fixated on their own reputation, for Paul to say this, this makes you want to gag. There's no way. This is a difficult way to live. Jesus himself said in John 15, listen to these words. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. This is not unfamiliar. The Christian life is difficult. We are always on the wrong side of history, so to speak. Look at verse 9. Like men sentenced to death. This alludes to what happened in the Roman world. Maybe you know that when a Roman, when the Roman army would conquer a town and destroy the army, they would bring a host of captives in. If they had the king, they'd bring him in first. He'd be shamed. They would lead them to the Colosseum, and you probably know the picture. Lots of sores. If you see a movie Gladiator, that's very accurate. I mean, as in the Colosseum part. Lots of death, typically thrown through the lions. You're paraded through the city, laughed at, mocked at, and to the lions you go, right? This is what Paul is literally, when he says, like men sentenced to death, this is, this is what he's talking about. The word here in my translation says a spectacle. The word literally means a theater. The Greek word literally is theater, Okay. We're on display. 
to be slain. That's what Paul's saying. Yet the Corinthians, how they see themselves, look at verse 8. You're already kings. They see themselves very highly. But to live as a faithful believer, we must realize that God's purpose in life is to humble us, to set us up as one who will suffer. The life of a Christian is a life of death to self. Friends, we are constantly a spectacle both to men and to angels, in case you didn't already know. Every single day you are being watched. Not just by people at work or your friends or your children. You are on display every day. You walk on the stage, so to speak. Because you're being watched, we must be obedient to the call of God, which is simply what? To deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Christ. By nature, as I said, we love self. Therefore, this is very difficult. So the command to become a Christian is the same thing to, re- to walk obediently as a Christian, to deny self and to run after Christ by faith. It is, there is no graduating from that. There is no, well, that was, the, that was the beginning. Now I do harder things. The Christian life every day, deny self, follow Christ. It has not changed. The way we enter the way to become a Christian is the same way we maintain our faith and obedience. Deny yourself and follow Christ. Or as Paul said, look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. For the sake of Christ, we will be fools to the eyes of the world. He's not saying we're actually foolish, right? If you remember the language of this letter, there's a lot of talk about foolishness and wisdom. This is how the world would see them, right? That you are a fool for the sake of Christ. How much does Paul think about himself right now? There's little, there's zero pride in that statement, right? We're a fool for Christ's sake. In fact, there is, that is the beauty of humility. There is no care of self. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's actually self-forgetfulness, thinking of self less, as C.S. Lewis said. How is that? Because we begin to look and to think and consider and love the glory of Christ more than our own reputation or more than our own, our own glory. How do we accomplish this task? It just sounds so easy. I think it's easy. It's an easy remedy, but it's a hard remedy to follow. Charles Spurgeon said this, You will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Ouch, Spurgeon. If we rid ourselves of our own glory, we can finally take in the glory of Christ. We must be empty to be filled, right? And first, that means by forsaking self, the opinion of self, the opinion of others looking at us, and living for the sake of Christ. This is only possible because of the cross. We cannot do this on our own. When Jesus died on the cross, he took my pride, and if you're a believer, your pride with him. And by faith in his death, his death is the death of my pride. My sin died that day with him, including my pride. His resurrection is mine because of faith I'm united to Jesus. By faith, I can now daily put to death my pride. It's dead and slowly dying, right? I can do that because I can look to someone that is greater and more glorious than myself by faith. And who is that? We're just saying it. Christ, right? Only a Christian can do this because we finally see, well, he's better. Why do I look at myself? I'm just dirt. Look at him, right? That's how we can put self to death by looking at something better, right? By enjoying something higher. Notice again in verse 10, the, the, the constant comparison back and forth. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, again, this is mockery, right? We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
Paul is calling them out back and forth as how they saw themselves, but that is not how the world saw the apostles. I say this very gently, and I mean it to be gentle. What a shame to be called wise and strong by a godless world's standards. Or to be considered rich and reigning by what the world thinks. What a shame. The most shocking line to me, uh, as I, I usually go to Panera and I drink lots of coffee, and I study over, my, over the text and I pray through and read through it and walk through the text and exegete it. Uh, verse 10, the phrase was most shocking is, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Friends, to be honored and to be thought of much by the world is not the type of Christian that I want to be. I don't want to be like, man, that's a cool kind of Christian what Kale has. God forbid. I do not want that. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be, as my former pastor, Nathan Rose, said, we shouldn't be a jerk for Jesus, walking around thinking, hey, you losers, hey, sinners, we should That's not what I'm trying to say. We shouldn't seek out pain. But obedience should be so definitional to who we are that the world just thinks, you are a weirdo. We should be unpopular because of our obedience. <clears throat> this means no fear in evangelism. No shame in saying biblical truth in a regular discussion about whatever. Regular talk. Bring up the Bible. No shame in doing that. No cares about offending someone by quoting the Bible or making them feel uncomfortable or scorn because we mention the word sin or judgment or Jesus or God or Scripture or anything. Isn't that kind of Christianity attractive to you? Imagine living like that. Zero fear. No shame. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Isn't that what you're, like, what you're dying for? Just to live like, I, oh, I want that so bad. It's beautiful, isn't it? The world just thinks it's disgusting. But in the eyes of the only opinion that matters, the God of the universe, it is such a beautiful thing. I don't want to be in hell in honor by the eyes of the world. I want to be a fool for the sake of Christ, to be in disrepute by the world's opinion. I want that more than, I want that more than anything in life, to be quite honest. There's nothing more in life I desire to be so obedient to Christ I look obnoxious, that I'm, an, I'm annoying. Again, I'm not trying to seek out pain, I don't understand, but so obedient that it's like, would you just, is all, do you just talk about Bible all the time? Yeah, kind of. I want that more than anything. To be a spectacle for the sake of Christ, to display, to speak of his value more than anything in the world. Perhaps you know most familiar words in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives probably the most painful and yet most memorable sermon ever preached. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says this. Now for family worship, I taught Jude, my son, that when he hears the word blessed, he should always say the word happy. It doesn't always mean that when it says blessed God, it doesn't mean happy God. It usually means praise. But in text like this, it means happy, right? To be whole, to be happy. So when you see the word blessed, you should automatically think happy. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't you want a happy life? Be a fool for the sake of Christ. It is a blessed life. Such obedience, such devotion really is the blessed life. What else does life look like? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 11 and 12. We hunger and thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, working with our own hands. This isn't calling for a vow of poverty. I'm not saying you take off all your gloves because it's cold and ditch your shoes and take all your clothes to goodwill and walk around half naked. I'm not saying that. Neither is Paul. What he's saying is whenever it's possible, because of pride, we should instead reject self and embrace Christ by faith, right? By humility. Here is Paul's point. Pride looks to self and compares to others. Humility looks to Christ and gives to others. If we are so filled and occupied and enthralled with the glory of Christ, we will always give of ourselves to others and to him. Right? Just consider the remedy. People are no longer, if you recognize this, people are no longer a competition to you, right? No more. They're either seen as two options. One, they are dead and lost in their sins. Or they are a brother and sister in Christ that you can run the race with. That's not competition, right? So consider this. When you see people around you outside, the store, gas station, restaurant, whatever, more than likely that person is not a believer. The way is wide. Many go to it, right? We can, we can say that, I think, humbly. That means that every minute of their life, they're under God's wrath. One day it will fall. That means that every person who's rich and famous on TV that are not believers, and you go, I wish I had their stuff, or people you see in the street, man, their house is beautiful, that's not fair. If you see them as lost, all of a sudden, you will care nothing of what they have, nothing of who you are. There will be no envying, right? Why is that? Because you see that they are under God's wrath. What's to envy? I want you to appear, or heard, they're dead. I want you to read a Puritan saying, if you put your ear to the door of hell, you'll forget all self. Just for a minute. For, this person's like that. That's where they're going to go, right? Why do I envy anything? I'll see them as dead. So because I'm captivated by Christ, I'll give of myself to take the scorn of the cross to them, to give the gospel to them, to give of myself to them, to serve them, to give them a track, whatever. I won't care about self. Likewise, to other believers in your midst, you will not envy them, right? Instead, you can rejoice with those who rejoice. You can actually weep with those who weep. You can rightly encourage them for God's grace in their life and be happy with them. Isn't that what we all want? To be happy with them? Good job. I'm so glad to hear that. Praise God. You can actually weep properly because you're not going to be thinking, you know, I had the same thing happen to me. No. Just weep with them, right? It's, it's, it's their weeping, right? We can do that properly. I need more grace. Also living as a Christian is like this. Look at verses 12 through 13. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Ponder these for a minute with me, would you? Reviled, what reviled me? Verbally assaulted, right? Saying nasty things about you. And how does Paul say they respond? Well, they bless. They don't retaliate, right? Well, you're a jerk too. Oh, they don't retaliate, right? Persecuted, what's persecution? You know, very simple. From an insult, you know, you Jesus freak, that kind of stuff. Physical pain, um, getting ill-treated at work, losses of any kind, pain, wealth, time, effect, whatever, anything. And Paul responds with, we endure. We suffer well. We know this is God's rod. This is God's furnace. We're going to endure. We're going to sit there and trust him. Slander, 
This one's extremely difficult, I think. Lies and rumors, right? Things that aren't true. What does slander do? It destroys your, your reputation, right? Here's what, it's just what I would do. That's not true. I didn't do that. That's a lie. I never said or did that or thought that, right? How does Paul respond? Not like that. What does he do? We entreat. We invite. We call them to repentance, right? Think of the world's responses to reviling, persecution, slander. What, what they say? Slug them in the face, right? Get them back. They threaten, they tell a rumor, nail them. Teeth their house. I don't know what people do anymore. But anyway, egg their, I don't know, whatever it is. The apostles would say, no, for the sake of Christ, we're not going to do that. We're going to endure, right? Go tell their boss. Go get them fired, what they did. That's evil. You should get them fired, right? Confront them in public. Make them look like, look like, like a fool, embarrass them, whatever. Instead, Paul dies to self for the benefit of others. He looks and endures because of Christ. He's so empty of himself, he's filled with Christ to live radically different. To be the scum of the world, right? What a helpful sentiment that is on a Christmas card or a greeting card. The refuse of all things. Paul would rather be scum for Christ than a king in Corinth. Hebrews 11.26 says this about Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We may be rejected on earth, but if you're a Christian, you will be remembered in heaven. In the eyes of the world, we are the scum. In the eyes of the Lord, we are his precious chosen ones. So the question needs to be asked, would you be obedient to the Lord, though you may be considered the scum of the world? Is your love for Christ bigger than your ego or the slander you may endure? I ask myself these same questions. Am I content to have rumors spread about me on earth because of the way I live as a Christian and to receive it with joy? How do you view yourself? How do you compare yourself? How much do you love Christ? Friends, the Christian life is a difficult one. But because Jesus conquered you and your sin 2,000 years ago, you are now empowered by the Spirit to daily follow Him. By faith in His Word, empowered by His Spirit, you can live this Christian life. You can conquer your love affair with self by loving Christ. As we close, I want to give you a final verse in a story. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, pride, who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the better treasure, right? Who loved me and gave himself for me. So if I give you the sermon in four words, this would be it. Love Christ, lose yourself. It's not popular life. It's actually more unpopular in other countries. I want to tell you a story. Currently in North Korea is counted the top country for persecution. They've been the top country for about 20-something years by their dictator. I would say their satanic dictator, Kim Jong-un. He is evil, um, and that's saying it very lightly. Christian ministries say that uh, as they involve themselves secretly with North Korean Christians, that they believe there are about 400,000 Christians living in North Korea in secret, uh, literally underground, meeting in houses, hiding, that kind of stuff. Uh, when they're caught, uh, if they're lucky, they're sentenced to death. But some get a different, um, different sentence. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's better. It kind of depends, I guess, who you ask. 
uh, you were put in a basically concentration camp. You work brutal labor, little sleep, little food, horrible conditions until you work yourself to death. That's what you get for being a Christian. One believer was able to escape a young lady. They changed her name uh, for us to know about it. And she actually escaped to China uh, and met some believers there who comforted her. They fed her, gave her a Bible. She didn't have a Bible. She knew about it. She didn't have one. And they encouraged her. What did she do? She re-enters North Korea because she has family there. And she goes to the same camp, the same house. And here's a letter she wrote. It's very brief. Here's an excerpt from it. But what she said to this Christian ministry um, in response. Quote, from the perspective of other people, our life of suffering must seem like a cursed life. However, this suffering is a blessing from our Father who allowed it into our life because it is a shortcut to the Father. We who receive his amazing grace keenly realize and understand his words. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. That means any life that follows his words is blessed. The thing I give thanks for most is that the Father uses me to work as his servant. I desire to dedicate my life until death to glorify him, end quote. And she probably will. She will probably die in North Korea. Suffering must seem like a cursed life, she said. Friends, it's better to suffer for Christ than to sin against him. May we remember the glorious truth of this text. Love Christ, lose yourself. Let's pray.